0: It's good to be here. My name is Jonathan. I am the campus pastor here, and uh, we are continuing on a series here uh, we've been going through all summer, uh, entitled The Book of Eli. We're looking at the life of Elijah. Uh, And as we get started here, I want to ask you a question, and, and that is, what happened, and I'm talking about in yourself, what happened in your heart the last time somebody cut in front of you in line? All right, what, what, what happened? What was your response when, when someone cut in front of you? Maybe you're driving in traffic and you see someone going up along the, the, the shoulder of the road and then just cutting right at the front of a line. What, what goes on in your head and in your heart? Right? Or, or maybe you're at a, at a restaurant and you're watching as the people who came after you are getting their food before you. And you're thinking, hold on a minute. I know we ordered before them. What's happening here? Or, or maybe you're, you're in line, uh, at the store and someone just goes straight up to the cashier right past the whole line of you all sitting there waiting. What goes on in your heart? I think nicely I could say you're probably a little annoyed, right? I think, honestly, we'd say we're angry, right? How dare they cut in line? You're not allowed to do that. We've been waiting here. You need to get to the back, right? Now, now I I got to witness this actually just just yesterday. uh, My family was at the Chilliwack Fair, and and I watched as we were lining up for the train ride, it's a kid's train ride, and someone, I don't think they even meant to do it, but just walked straight up past the line and jumped onto the train. What happened next was that everyone in line was suddenly very upset, right? And they voiced their opinions very loudly and clearly for all to hear that this should not have happened. Now, thankfully, there was a lot of kids around and the language was quite polite, but you can imagine what was going on, all right? Nobody was happy about that. My point is this. It's not really about lines at all. My point is we can take something very you know, somewhat trivial. It's a kid's train ride. This is low-stakes environment, and the moment we see something that says, well, that's not right, we jump on it, and we start claiming, we need justice here, right? We are very quick to, to claim, hey, you know what? That's not right. It needs to be fixed right away, right? We want to call out injustice, and yet we are also very, very slow to be patient, to actually show mercy to other people. The irony, of course, is that we want people to treat us the exact opposite way. We want people to be very patient with us, to show us lots of mercy and grace, because when we accidentally do something like that, we want everyone to be, oh, okay, it's all right, just, just, you know, we'll figure it out. And yet, our first response is usually one of, we need justice right away. Of course, the irony is we want the opposite, but we actually also need the opposite. We need God to actually be very quick to show us mercy and not judgment. And actually, what we're going to see as we start working through our passage here is that, in fact, that is what God does far more than we ever realize it. All right, if you have a Bible here with you, let me invite you to open to uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, right? We've heard our story uh, read already, and so we know it's, it's about King Ahab. He, he's being greedy. He wants something that's not his. His wife Jezebel gets involved, has this whole murderous scheme and plot that goes on uh, in the background. And so what we're going to see is here, first of all, that, that actually sin makes a lot of promises to us, but they don't actually come true. They are false promises. The second thing is that sin isn't actually hidden, despite what we might think, that sin is not invisible. But finally, and really mainly what I want us to see here, is that God is far more merciful than we can imagine or even understand sometimes. This is a story that highlights the incredible and surprising mercy of God for sinners. All right? So let's, let's walk through this story a little bit together, and we're going to start off by seeing, first of all, well, sin's false promises. All right, our story begins, and we're introduced to this new person. We haven't met him before. His name is Naboth, right? All we're really told is that he's a Jezreelite and that he's got a vineyard, all right? And so this vineyard is, is right next to King Ahab's house, right? Their garden's kind of back- on to one another. And so we can kind of guess, you know, Naboth probably was doing fairly well if he's living right next to the king. He's probably someone of some importance. And clearly, he's got a nice enough garden for Ahab to look over and say, yeah, I really want that for myself. And, and, and what we need to realize here is that gardens, you know, we, we think about gardens in, you know, kind of a fairly average, normal way, right? Lots of us have gardens in our backyards that we keep. Maybe we do well, maybe we don't. It's not a big deal, In the ancient times, actually, gardens was a symbol of royalty. Kings kept gardens, right? Everyone else, they had fields where they might want to grow crops, vegetables, whatever. Kings had a garden. It would be luxurious. And so it was a symbol of your royalty and power and and, and wealth to have this, this beautiful, gorgeous, large garden in your palace. And so Ahab looks and he says, yeah, that's what I want. I want a bigger garden. And so he goes to Naboth. And, and to be fair to Ahab, this is probably the most honest thing he's done ever, all right? Verse 2, it says, after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money, right? That, that seems on the outset like a pretty good offer, right? I'm going to give you something even better or I'll just pay you straight out cash and you can have it, right? But, it's not a terrible offer that Ahab is giving. But verse 3, we, we get the conflict of this passage that will now dominate. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So here is the problem Naboth is not simply going to hand over his vineyard. Why? Because this was land that God had given to him and to his family. This was not some sort of trivial piece of land that had no connection. No, this was God's gift to him, and he, clearly here being a devout follower of God, is wanting to say, no, this is, this is God's gift. I'm going to steward it well, right? Now, the other thing that, that's probably working in the background here that we might not recognize right away is in Numbers... In the law of Moses, uh, God actually tells them, look, when you are selling your property, they're allowed to sell their property. When you're selling it, don't sell it outside of your tribes. This is why the verse or the chapter keeps on repeating the fact that he is a Jezreelite. He's not of the same tribe as Ahab. So Ahab's actually asking him, I want you to first give me what God has given to you. And secondly, he shouldn't actually be giving. And so for both reasons, Naboth says, no, I'm not going to do that. As good as an offer as Ahab was making, Naboth is not interested. Verse 4 tells us Ahab then went home vexed and sullen, and he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. I mean, essentially, Ahab is just acting like a toddler, right, who's just been told you can't have another piece of candy, and he's going and crying in his room and not, not wanting to talk about it with anyone. And I mean, I'm sure the whole palace was kind of going, "Is this, this, this is the king? All right? This is the guy in charge? Okay. All right. But see, what's going on here is Ahab is actually believing something that's not true. He, he's already begun to buy into one of the lies that sin has been telling him. One is that if he could just have that garden, he'd be happy. If he just had a little bit more, then he would actually be happy. And in fact, you can't be happy if you don't have this garden, right? Ahab is absolutely coveting his neighbor's garden, and he has convinced himself that he cannot be happy unless he has this, right? It's a lie sin still uses all the time, uses in our own lives. You can't be happy unless you have and fill in the blank, That new car, the new house, the new phone, the new job, the new relationship, whatever it is, I can't be happy unless I have something else. There's something that's missing that's keeping me from being happy. Sin still lies like that all the time, right? We think if we just have a little bit more, then we'll be happy. But here's the truth. None of it ultimately satisfies Because everything new becomes old, and then we're just stuck looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. None of it ultimately is satisfying. In fact, Paul writes in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, he says, "'Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need.'" Paul says, you want to know what the secret is to contentment, to happiness, to, to peace in your life? It's not going to be found in your stuff. It's not going to be found in how much you have or how little you have. Ultimately, peace in life, contentment is found in knowing Jesus. That's where Paul's going to go. But see, this is why this sinful line of thinking is so deceptive and ultimately fails. Because not only is sin promising Ahab something that it can't possibly deliver, in fact, sin here is going to drive him from bad to worse. And as if on cue, thus enters Jezebel, his wife, right? Verse 5, Jezebel gets involved, and every time we have seen her in the story, things go from bad to worse. After Ahab kind of explains what's been going on, I want this garden, I can't have it, Naboth said no, and now I'm sulking in my room. She looks at him, verse 7, Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite." Right, Jezebel in this passage is essentially acting as the voice of sin itself. She is tempting and luring in Ahab, I will give you what you want. All you have to do is give in to what I say. Right? She essentially says, look, you're the king. You can do whatever you want. All you have to do is use your power in such a way to get what you are looking for. And so she comes up with this whole scheme. She's going to write letters in, in Ahab's name. She's going to write them to what the text calls worthless men, right? These people who are basically, they're going to do whatever Jezebel tells her or tells them to do. And Jezebel says, here's what's going to happen. Here's the plan. We're going to call a national fast. Everyone's going to be fasting. And we've got to make sure Naboth is in there, all right? He's, he's one of the chief people. Everyone's focused and looking at Naboth. And then during the fast right, when everyone's kind of mourning and sulling, but we'll come up with a good reason for for why we should be fasting, what you're going to do is in the middle of that, you're going to accuse Naboth. You're going to say, the reason everything is going wrong is because of him. He cursed God and the king, and we should actually stone him. This is Jezebel's plan. All Ahab has to do is say, okay. All he has to do is simply not, you know, not stop her, hand over his signet ring, right? She has to write letters in his name, which would have required what's called a signet ring. The king would have a ring with his symbol. They'd press it onto the letter. That's how you know, okay, this is from Ahab himself. All Ahab has to do is not interfere, to pass off this into Jezebel's hands, and that's exactly what he does. He passes this off into her hands, doesn't, doesn't take charge, but simply sits back. We've seen Ahab do this again and again. Jezebel just pushes him around every single way. And what happens is her scheme works basically exactly the way she planned it out. They call a fast. Naboth is put up there as as one of the chief people and and during it, two men come up and they accuse him of cursing God and the king. They whip up the crowd into a frenzy and they say, all right, we're going to stone him right here and right now. They drag him out and they put him to death. For just a moment, it seems like, wow, that worked. Right? Jezebel's plan worked for a minute. Verse 15, as soon as as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. It worked. The scheme worked, right? sin's promise seemed to come true for just a moment. But see, if Ahab had ever been reading, say, the book of Proverbs, he would have recognized what was going to happen next. Proverbs has lots of, 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 well, Proverbs in it, all about what this is going to look like. In fact, Proverbs chapter 9, I'm just paraphrasing here, says, "'Stolen water is sweet, tastes good, but it leads down to death.'" Right? The next step is that this is going to go terribly wrong, and in fact, that's exactly what happened. Sin's promises are always false, and this is no exception. See, to this point, Ahab assumes he has gotten away with it. Ahab assumes, look, no one knows what's happened. No one can know. And in fact, I didn't kill Naboth right? Ahab wasn't even there, most likely. He was far away. No one could blame Ab- Ahab, or Ahab for what had happened. But here's the next point. Sin is not hidden. Verse 17 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. Right, as soon as it's happened, as soon as Ahab is happily skipping down to go collect his prize, God is at the same moment sending Elijah to go and find him right where he is going. See, he can play innocent all he wants in this situation, but God knows exactly what has gone on. God is not fooled. He's not, he's not, uh, God was not unaware of what was going on. In fact, God is sending Elijah to confront Ahab on his sin. In verse 19, God speaking to Elijah still says, you shall say to him, Ahab, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? Right, this is God's version of, did you really just do that? Do you think you would get away with it that no one would notice what you've done? keeps going. He says, you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Now, there is an image, isn't it? Right? Ahab's sin was far from hidden. God knew exactly what had happened, and God is going to hold Ahab accountable for what he has done. His sin is not going to go unpunished. And as soon as Elijah then shows up into this garden, right, you've got to love Ahab's first response, have you found me, O my enemy? Right? Ahab does not like Elijah. And to be fair, Elijah has almost never shown up with good news, right? mostly because Ahab keeps ignoring God. He comes in, and Elijah now begins to speak on behalf of God. In verse 21, he says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. Everyone who follows you in your sin will be cut off from Israel. God is going to clean house at this point. Right In the same way that, that God had driven out the nations before Israel, God is going to now drive you out of Israel for your sin. I'm going to cut you off. This is the end of your line. Verse 22, he says, I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. These are both former kings who had ruled in Israel who had been cut off for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. See, not only did Ahab sin, in fact, he made the people do his dirty work, right? God is not, you know, he's not caught off by that. He says, I know exactly what you have done. You made other people murder on your behalf. How dare you? And before Ahab can even respond in some sputtering way, well, 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 my wife, my wife. Nope, God has it covered. Verse twenty-three. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, "The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel." Right? Jezebel will be held accountable for her actions as well. Right? No one is getting away with it. No part of this scheme was actually hidden from God. In fact, we're, we're not going to read it all. Uh, not not today. But every part of this prophecy is going to come true in these next couple of chapters. Next chapter, Ahab is going to die. After that, it's going to be his son. And a few chapters later, it will be Jezebel. Every single one of the things that God has said is going to come true. And you might be thinking to yourself, all right, all right, but this is really graphic language, isn't it? I mean, this is really kind of like almost disturbing language. I I get that Ahab's done something wrong, but I mean, how exactly are we supposed to understand these kinds of images? Because they're they're fairly, mm, we would use the words, brutal, right? They're fairly gruesome. And I think there's probably two answers I can give to that. One is that we're reading something that was written nearly nearly 3,000 years ago, On the other side of the world, in a completely different culture than ours, it's going to sound different. But I think probably the bigger thing is that we have stopped viewing sin the way the Bible does. See, we view sin very, I'm gonna use the word sterile, right? It's very clinical, it's very removed, it's very almost clean in the sense of, you know what, yeah, we might have character defects here and there right? We have accidents. Everyone slips up. Everyone has lots of excuses for their sin. It's, it's something that happens, but, but when we actually deal with how does the Bible talk about sin, it's far more revolting, right? The, the description of, of God's response to sin here, we think, ah, I mean, that, that's, that's hard to even listen to. In fact, that, that gives us a little picture of how God views our sin. It's hard to even see, as much as we want to take it apart, actually, I think these are warnings even for us as well as to how our sin is viewed before God. None of this has escaped what God, God's notice. Sin is not hidden, and in fact, God is going to judge sin. See, we're not intended to read this simply as uh, as what happened to Ahab, but it's a warning for ourselves. Our sin has not escaped God's notice either. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Right? Jesus says every word that just slips out of our mouth, that God will also hold us accountable for. Right? For everything that we have done, every sinful thought, every hidden desire or sin we've taken that we thought no one will know about will be brought out on that day. It's as if there's a movie camera that's been following us our whole lives. It doesn't pan away, and one day that whole film will be shown our thoughts on loudspeaker for all to hear. Hear me, at that point, it is bad news for everyone. There's no one who's going to come out looking good after that. Everyone is sinful. Everyone stands under God's judgment. In fact, God here is confronting Ahab with his hidden sin, but his word is doing the same thing for us even right now. We're confronted with the fact that God knows about our sin as well. And so here is what I want us to realize. We have three options for what's going to happen. Okay, there's three options for what's going to happen. Number one, we've already talked about, is that we wait, and there on the day of judgment, God brings out every hidden sin that we have fully on display, and God judges us for it. Number two is that our sin gets exposed, that it it gets brought out into light by accident, right? So we get caught in the act, and now we face the consequences both now and later. But of course, there is a third option, and I think that's actually what this text is meant to lead us to. The third option is that we confess our sin is that we actually come before God and say, look, none of this has been hidden to you. You are fully aware of all of these things. And so God, I am confessing them before you, and I am seeking forgiveness. See, that is ultimately the point. It's not simply to to scare us that God knows everything. No, that's not the point. The point is to call us to actually confess and repent before him because there's nothing God has not known And actually, what we're going to see here is that God is far more merciful than you can imagine. This is the final point, and it is good news. God is merciful to sinners. His mercy is incredible. Look back at verse 25. It says, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably, going about after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. We suddenly get sort of a a pause in the story. We get a summary statement of all of Ahab's life. What, What kind of a guy was Ahab? Terrible, right? He was sold out for doing evil his whole life. And you might think, okay, why did we take that little pause journey? Why, why, why are we including that at this point? And I think it's to draw a contrast to what is about to happen. Verse 27, it says, when Ahab heard those words, the words of Elijah, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. I don't know about you, but that was not the response I was expecting from King Ahab. He has been hearing God speak to him and call him out for years now and has not responded in any kind of way like this. Suddenly he is mourning. And we look at that and we think, all right, like is this, is this, is this Ahab? Just he, he's had a moment, finally he realizes, all right, I gotta turn and trust in God. I'm gonna commit my life. Unfortunately, the answer is no. That's not actually what's happening here. In fact, as we, as we continue on in the story, Ahab's only around for one more chapter, and in it, he has no interest of following after God. He has no interest of actually trusting in God. In, in many ways, we're meant to be seeing a parallel here to this whole story. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, this story is going to sound very familiar right david david is also the king and he stands in his palace and he looks out of his palace and he sees something he wants in this case it's the woman bathsheba right? And and David covets after her, and then he comes up with a similar kind of scheme, all right? She's married. I need to get rid of her husband. So, he comes up with a scheme to have him killed so that he can go and marry Bathsheba, and no one is the wiser. And just like with Ahab, God sends a prophet to David and calls him out on his hidden sin. But here is the difference. The difference is how these two men responded both of them put on sackcloth, both of them mourned, but David mourned his sin. In Psalm chapter 51, he writes, I have sinned against you, God. He asks God, create in me a clean heart, take not your presence from me. David repents of his sin, he wants nothing more to do it, and clings on to God. Ahab is sorry he got exposed. There is a big difference between feeling sorry you got caught and sorry because you sinned. Ahab is sorry he got caught. He's probably mourning the consequences and the bad things that Elijah is saying, but he does not repent or trust in God. He is not sorry for his actions. Rather, he's just simply mourning because bad things are happening. But here's where you might say, wait, hold on just a minute, because don't we see something else happen in the text? Look back at verse 28. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I'll bring the disaster upon his house. We read that and we think, wait, hold on. I mean, doesn't that mean that that God sees his repentance as genuine? Doesn't that mean that, that, that God says, look, he's humbled himself and he has, right? This is the first time Ahab has ever listened to something that God has said. But here's the thing, God already knows the end of this story. God knows what Ahab is going to do next. He knows where Ahab's heart is at right now. And so the question is, if that is the case, if God knows that Ahab is not going to follow him, why is God delaying this punishment? And here is the answer I think we are forced to come to. God is far more merciful than we ever expected. God is not longing to bring down judgment. He is longing and looking for ways to be merciful and to show mercy. God is well aware that Ahab's repentance is far from genuine, and yet God is willing to put judgment on delay because he is longing to show mercy. God is showing this awful king mercy he does not deserve. And in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised. That's who God told us he is. Back in Exodus chapter 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, this is what he says. He says, I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. It's the first thing he says. His first attribute he gives to himself there is that he is merciful. He longs to show mercy. In fact, if you know the story of Jonah, right? There's Jonah and the whale, right? If you, if you know the, the, the story, right? God sends Jonah. Go, go, preach, go preach to the Ninevites, right? They're Babylonians. And Jonah runs away. He doesn't want to do it, right? He tries to get away. God drags him back, kicking and stre- screaming, right? Eventually, he goes to Nineveh. He preaches, and they humble themselves, and God relents of this disaster. And oftentimes, we assume, why did Jonah run away the first time? Well, simply because he he was scared. That's not why he ran. Chapter 4, it says in Jonah chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Why? Because God didn't destroy the city. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah tried to run because he didn't want God to show them mercy. He knew that if he just went, God would be merciful. And here's the thing. Did the Babylonians repent and humble themselves? Yeah. Yeah. Did did they stop worshiping idols, stop attacking innocent people? No. They still continued on. And you, you might ask, why is God being merciful? Because that's who he is. In our story, Ahab's judgment is delayed. And we might think, why? Why is God so merciful to those who do not deserve it? And here's the thing. Ahab does not deserve it. And that's the point. The point that God is getting to is that he is a God who is merciful to those who do not deserve it. That is the only reason why any of us are still here today. If God does truly know every single one of our hidden sins, it means God has shown us far more mercy than we have ever realized. None of us have earned or deserved God's mercy, and yet he has given it to us. God knows everything that we have done, and yet he is still abounding in mercy. And so, God delays Ahab's judgment. But here's the point that we do need to still see. It is delayed, but it does still come. God does still hold him accountable, right? God is still just. He will uphold justice. And so that that judgment is delayed for a time to to show us God's mercy, and yet it still comes because God does not simply allow evil to get away with it, to win the day. But here we, we see already, we see God's determination to show mercy to those who do not deserve it. And I mean, It is just a perfect picture of what Jesus eventually will do on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it was God's mercy and his justice on display at the same time. When Jesus died there, God's incredible mercy and his unchanging justice came together. The judgment of our sins came down, but not on us. Instead, God laid the punishment for our sins on Jesus so that anyone who would trust in him would be saved. In one action, God's mercy and justice come together. Sin dealt with and mercy extended. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, after describing our helpless state stuck in sin, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Salvation comes because God is rich in mercy. He is overflowing with mercy towards those who do not deserve it. It doesn't mean that God is unjust or he's going to allow people to get away with anything far from it. But what it does mean is that God is that God's disposition is one of mercy. He is looking for ways to show mercy. No one deserved it. No one has earned God's love or his salvation. But here's the thing, if God is so determined to show mercy and grace to Ahab who doesn't even really repent, how much more mercy and grace and love will he pour out on all those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ? If God is determined to show mercy to someone like Ahab, how much more will he show mercy to everyone who repents? There is no one who is outside of God's mercy. No, for all who repent, the promise we have is God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. God is merciful to sinners like us. So how do we respond to this kind of a passage? First of all, we need to see the deceitfulness of sin. the empty promises it makes, how much sin fails to provide on, on what it promises. We need to be reminded that none of our sins are hidden before God. God is fully aware of everything that we have done. And so the call is, would you confess your sins before him? Would you come before him because he is merciful and gracious? Place your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins whether that is the first time, or trust Him anew. It is His mercy that has sustained us this far, and it is His mercy that will see us through. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful. Lord, we are so thankful for Your mercy, for Your grace, that You have poured out on us when we did not even realize. Lord, we have sinned far more than we have admitted And yet, Lord, you are merciful beyond what we even understand. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Lord, I pray that we would confess our sins before you because you are gracious and merciful. Lord, that we would come to you and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus that we might be saved, that we might be forgiven, and that we might ultimately be with you. Lord, we thank you for your gifts. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. We ask these things in your name. Amen.